All right, let's go ahead and dismiss the kids for Children's Church. Good morning to you. Um, This morning we are concluding a three-week series on the topic of suffering. During this past year, I was both diagnosed with cancer and healed from it. It's been a long and difficult year. At times it felt like the suffering would never end. But by the kindness of God, he healed me. On the one hand, these messages have been part of my story. But on the other hand, they've been a part of God's story. There are things I had to struggle with and things that I had to learn. And as I've shared them with you, I've I've done so through the lens of God's word. Because these are things I believe that are common to all believers. Suffering is hard, whether it's physical or whether it's emotional. And in the midst of it, I needed to know, first and foremost, that God reigns that he was absolutely in control of it. And I also needed to ask God why he was doing this to me. Last week, I shared four reasons why we suffer. To lift our eyes towards God and to fill our hearts with a longing for what is to come. To loosen our grip on this life. To bring glory to God or even to discipline us for our sin. And then I also said I would be giving you a fifth reason why we suffer this morning. Consequently, this fifth reason is also what I needed to begin doing. And that is to begin comforting others with the comfort that I had received from God. This last message focuses on offering help to those who are suffering. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. To comfort means to bring relief, to alleviate, to console, or to encourage. It's to, it's to bring support to someone, to bring them peace, or to bring them joy where there seems to be none. In other words, when we are afflicted, when we go through suffering, God works in it and through it and uses it to help others. When we go through suffering, God comforts us. And then the effect that comfort has on our lives, God uses it to comfort others. Verse 6 reiterates this idea by saying, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So if you've been through suffering... And in the midst of your suffering, you discover, you realize that God truly is the God of all comfort as he comforts you, then you are now fully equipped to help others with the comfort he gave you. 
But please don't make the mistake of thinking this is some kind of exclusive club members only command. As in you think to yourself, well, I've never been through cancer, so how could I possibly bring comfort to someone who has? Or I've never been through a tragedy like that before, so how could I possibly bring comfort to them? Because that's often what we read into this passage. We read into it the idea that only those who have gone through the same thing will understand. Only those who have been through a similar situation could be of help. But that's not at all what this says. It says, so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received. So it's not the experience of the same suffering that we're supposed to pass along, but it's the comfort from God that we are to pass along. If you've been through a trial, if you've been through suffering, and it's, it's kind of silly for me to say if, because you have. We've all been through suffering. We've all been through trials. And no matter how big or small they were, you can comfort someone else. As I suffered this past year, it was a great blessing to be able to be comforted by others who had been through cancer. Some of my friends had even had the exact same kind of cancer that I had. But I also received comfort from those who have never had cancer, who've never been through anything like what I just went through. Did I value the insights and the wisdom from those who had walked where I was walking, absolutely. But more than anything, more than anything, I treasured the comfort that anyone gave me. And they still continue to give to me. So the real question we need to address here is what should this comfort look like? What should this comfort look like? To be completely honest with you, I am not a very comforting person has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I'm a man or that it's not my spiritual gift or any other excuse that I could come up with. But instead, it has everything to do with my heart. As the months of treatment passed by and I, I continued to get worse, one of the things God opened my eyes to was to realize just how much I fall short in caring for others. It was as though being sick made me more aware of what sick people need. As friends and family both ministered to me above and beyond what I would ever expected, I suddenly realized something had been very much lacking in my life as a Christian. So the rest of what I'm about to share with you this morning is pretty much a work in progress in my own life. What I want to share with you are several practical ways that we can comfort or that we can help those who are suffering. Or actually, the way I ought to phrase this would be to say, here are some practical ways we can all take part in what God is doing in our lives as he brings comfort to others through us. You might think for a moment that this is some kind of like insider's info. Like I'm, gonna, like, I'm about to reveal to you, like, whoa, like, I never thought of that. Not at all. The things that I'm going to share with you are not going to blow you away. But they're the things that God repeatedly talks about in his word. There is no insider info. 
There's no special revelation. It's already been revealed in God's word. So number one, be willing to say what you need so that others can comfort you. One of the first big lessons that I learned and that my wife learned and that our family learned through this was we had to humble ourselves and ask for help. So this is actually something you as the sufferer need to do. Initially, people began to swarm us with offers to help, and we would say things like, oh, we're fine. We don't really need anything. We just need your prayers. And most certainly, we needed prayer. But it didn't take but a few weeks of suffering before we realized we need more than just prayer. We need the answers to those prayers. I was no longer strong enough to do the things that I used to do, even giving our kids rides to school or practices. So for all practical purposes, my wife became a single parent for the better part of last year. Everything that both she and I used to do, she was now doing all on her own. And so it didn't take but just a few days before we realized she was going to crash. And that's when our good friend Sarah Pishney came and visited us. She spent an entire day with us, cooking meals for us, praying for us, and just repeatedly asking us the question, what do you need? What do you need? What can people do? And we would tell her, oh, not much. Just pray for us. And her reply was along the lines of, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and that's when the Spirit of God really began to work, both in her heart and our hearts, as she pleaded with us to humble ourselves and to ask for help. She said no matter the task, we should ask, whether it was more meals, whether it was having people come clean our house or doing house projects or whatever. She said we had no idea how many people truly wanted to help us, but they just had no idea what they could do. It was along the lines of what Moses' father-in-law told him. What is this you are doing, Moses? Why do you sit alone and all the people around you stand from morning till night. So we needed to open our hearts. And you need to open your hearts when you go through suffering so that we can be comforted by God through others. One of the first ways we, we, we tried to put this into to action was we asked for several meals a week. Initially, the plan was to just to receive a meal on, on the days that I got treatment, which was every two weeks. So it was a big deal for us to humble ourselves and say, okay, we need a lot more meals. <laughs> and initially, we felt kind of greedy, but that lasted about two days. <laughs> because we realized what a great comfort it was to us. In so many ways, it was literally 
saving our lives. It brought us so much relief, so much joy. To have those, to have those simple meals. And through our humility, God brought us grace. As Paul, and Paul writes about this. He talks about the body of Christ coming together in 1 Corinthians 12. When he says that we cannot say we don't need one another. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. On the contrary, we need one another. But people need to know what our needs are. They aren't mind readers. So we have to let them know. So when you are suffering, or the next time you go through a time of suffering, I would plead with you, as Sarah pleaded with us, to humble yourself and let people know what you need. You may not know right away, but once you realize what you need, once you realize what someone else might do to alleviate the stress and the weight of it all, something that might bring you joy or peace in the midst of your trial, then let others know. And at the same time, let us also realize that those who are suffering can't always do this. So we need to be prepared as the body of Christ to comfort and love those who are suffering, even when they haven't asked for it. The second way we can help those who are suffering is to do the things that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 25. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. The second way we can help those who are suffering is to do the things that Jesus spoke of here in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, 
as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This passage is all too often misunderstood by Christians. Typically, it's, it's used as a means to encourage us to love those outside of the family of believers. This passage is often used as, as the slogan for, for missions trips or missions organizations. But instead, this passage is one of God's judgments based on how well or how poorly his own children have been treated in difficult times. Now, there's no question there are other passages in the Bible that compel us to love those outside of the church. But that's not the focus of this passage. Instead, this passage actually compels us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, who are going through difficult times. That's why Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, you did it to me, in verse 40. By brother, he means brother from the same womb, from the same blood, born of the same parents, or of the same mother, or of the same father. The word is not meant to imply mankind or just some random person, but rather family. Thus, the term is also used for fellow Christians who have become brothers and sisters in Christ because they have the same Father in heaven, and they also have the same blood, the blood of Christ. 1 John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So when you become a Christian, you become part of the family of God, where God is your Father, and Jesus is now your brother. Notice also that Jesus says, as you did it to my brothers, you did it to me. God loves his children, and he really does care about how they are treated. He considers favor shown to his children as shown to himself. In Matthew 10, 40, Jesus says this, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives my father. This is exactly how a parent feels. If you are kind to my son or daughter, it's as though you have been kind to me, right? Isn't that how we, we look at how people treat our children? And if they're kind to them, that's how they've treated us. So for example, the first young man who decides to date my daughter, when he says to me, Mr. Joyce, I would love nothing more than for you to come on all of our dates with us. That young man is showing me an incredible amount of kindness. <laughs> and my daughter as well, right? I mean, if you are kind to our kids, you are kind to us. And in the end, God cares about how his kids are treated. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. God loves us and cares for us so much that he's built into his judgment against the wicked, against our enemy. He's built into those judgments how they have treated his kids. 
So Jesus says he will divide people into two groups, one on his left, the other his right, and then declares that the basis of that division will be the treatment of his brothers. Jesus is basically saying, here's how, here's how some of you have loved, and here's how some of you have hated my children. And that's why we're looking at this passage, because the way in which they were treated informs us, teaches us how we can better comfort one another in our suffering. The way they were treated is clarified in verse 44 by the word minister. To minister meant to care for, to attend to, to serve. It literally meant to wait on tables. In the same way a waiter serves their guests, they welcome them, they wait on them, they're attentive to their needs, they're thinking ahead, what can I do to improve things, to give them a better experience, to comfort them, to, to love them. That is exactly how we are to care for one another. So Jesus gives us specific examples of what this looks like. Number one, he says they brought them meals. Verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. They took time to consider a meal. They took time to go and purchase ingredients and then prepare them and then deliver them. Number two, they, they welcomed them into their lives. Verse 35 says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. In other words, I was someone new to you. You didn't know me. I was, it was like I was new to town and you welcomed me. When I had no friends, you became a friend. You took me in. You received me. Even more than that, the word here, welcome, means it's the idea of a resort. You became a resort to someone else. I mean, think about that. Like, those, those of you who have been to a resort, like, it's the, the, the great idea is that, man, everything is going to be taken care of for me here. And that's what Jesus is saying. Number three, they clothed them. Verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was poorly dressed. I was insufficiently dressed. Like a, like a child without a coat in the winter. And you provided that need for me. Number four, they cared for them. Although verse 36 says, I was sick and you visited me, this word for visit is different than just merely stopping by. It was to be thought of more as a prolonged stay. It meant I had no strength, and you came and did for me what I could not do for myself. You were physically present. You were there. You looked after me. You cared for me. You provided for me. And then number five, you visited them. Verse 36 says, I was in prison and you came to me. Here the word does mean you stopped by. You came and visited for a short time because that was the most appropriate thing to do since, since you were in jail. I think for the most part we make an assumption here that this is probably a Christian who would be in prison 
because of something that was done unfairly to them. But what if they actually deserved it? What if they actually caused it to happen? Should we not visit them? By no means. Jesus doesn't clarify here why they were in prison, so I don't think we should either. If they caused it, or if they are suffering because of something they did, that does not mean that we can withhold comfort or care from them. We should not withhold love or care from them. They are our brother or sister in Christ. God's Son shed his blood for them. The cross was bloody. A heavy price was paid for their sin. And God has forgiven them. And you should too. All the things about you that, all the things about them that might upset you are forgiven. They have been justified by faith, not by their works. So don't make them work for God's love. Don't make them work for your love. God doesn't. And if God has clothed them with righteousness, then you should too. You should treat them, if God looks at us, you know, as though we've never sinned, then we should look at them as well. If God looks at us and says, I not only look at you as though you've never sinned, but I also clothe you in righteousness. I also look at you as though you've perfectly obeyed me in all things through Christ. Then that's how we also ought to look at them. These five things from Matthew 25 are what I would call marks of a Christian or marks of a Christian who comforts and cares for and loves their brothers and sisters in Christ. These things do not make you a Christian, but rather these things are evidence that you are one. We've already been told in verse 34 that they are inheriting the kingdom. They're not earning it. Just like the child does not earn their inheritance, they receive it. And so the good deeds Jesus mentions here, they're not the basis of salvation, but they're the fruit of it. It's as though Jesus were saying this, come on into heaven, because first and foremost, you are a child of God. You've been chosen by my Father to receive this inheritance. And this is evidenced by the care you have shown to the rest of God's children who also happen to be my brothers and sisters. So not only do followers of Christ worship and pray and read their Bibles, but followers of Christ bring meals. They welcome new believers into their lives. They clothe them, they care for them, and they visit them. These should be significant marks of every Christian's life. Do they mark your life? And the third way we can help those who are suffering is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Is that? While writing to a group of believers who were absolutely going through a time of suffering in their lives, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, to love one another earnestly 
from a pure heart. The word for earnestly in the Greek is actually a physiological term, meaning to work a muscle to its limits. Another way to put this is to work out or to exercise to exhaustion. This is how he encourages us to love one another, to exhaustion, as though we've gone through the most demanding workout and we have nothing left to give. Imagine for a moment, is that how you love? Is that how you love one another? When was the last time you actually loved someone so much that afterwards you felt like, whoa, I just gotta sit down and take a break? Somebody give me a bottle of water, somebody give me a towel, because it just felt like a workout. That's the kind of love that we are to show to one another. We're to go all out. We're to empty ourselves. We're to love one another to exhaustion. We're to give the same effort to loving them as we would give to a sport. And this does not mean that none of us are not loving one another, but rather it means we need to grow in our love for one another. In other words, you are all likely loving one another to some degree or another, but what you need to do is love one another even more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You may have been doing a good job of loving others, but now you need to do this more. So on the one hand, God is saying, I see some good things in your life. But on the other hand, he's saying, you could be doing more. Much like how we categorize things as good, better, and best, here, God is challenging us to move from good to better, or from better to best. The challenge was to exceed the ordinary, to go beyond what might be expected, or to go above and beyond. Over the past year, I've witnessed so many above and beyond acts of love that have spurred me on to love others more and more. The parents of, of one of our kids' friends at school bought me a Superman coffee mug, some tea, a pair of slippers, and a blanket. And to be honest, I had no idea why they'd gotten me these gifts. But as I continued to get sicker and sicker, each one of those gifts became a huge blessing. Some friends of ours from church, they got several bags of treats for our kids just to brighten their day, realizing that they too were struggling with seeing their dad so sick. Some of our college friends drove over from Des Moines just to take us out for dinner and pray with us. Some other friends of ours came to several of my treatments just to visit us 
and just help pass the time. One of our students in the youth group made me a beanie hat. This is seriously the best gift I received throughout the whole ordeal. And a church friend brought over so much food, we had to store most of it in a neighbor's freezer. (laughs) And this was like crazy, expensive health food. So ask yourself these questions as you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are going through a difficult time. Maybe they expect you to do nothing. And go above and beyond and do something. It's because it's your brother, it's your sister. Do they expect a text? Well, then go above and beyond. Do they expect a card? Then go above and beyond that. Do they expect you to give them a meal? Then go above and beyond. Do they expect you to visit them? Well, then go above and beyond. Here's the deal. Whatever we think they might expect, we can't use that as an excuse to only do that. Well, they don't expect me to do nothing, so I'm going to do nothing. Even if we reason to ourselves, they must be getting so much love from someone else we still have to go above and beyond. We must love one another earnestly. We must love one another more and more. And that's one of the amazing things about love. There's no ceiling. There's no limit. You can never love too much. There's always room to grow. Imagine for a moment if, if for those of you who are married, if we never grew to love our spouses more and more if we only love them as much as we did on our wedding day. I don't know about you, but for me, that would be really sad because I was really selfish. When I first got married, the person that I truly loved more than anything was myself, not my wife. Sure, I professed to to love her all the time, But more than anything, I just loved all the things about her that made me happy. My motivation for loving her was to get more of what I wanted. I didn't actually know what selfless, sacrificial love was. I knew nothing of the kind of love to which Jesus set as an example by washing his disciples' feet or of laying down my life or of putting her needs before my own. To me, loving her came in the form of buying her flowers, which I had no idea she doesn't even like flowers. (laughs) Buying her lame Christmas gifts, like jumper cables. Taking her out to eat at places that I liked, or watching movies with her that I liked. I remember one movie in particular she, she disliked so much she began to cry, and I just looked at her like, what's wrong with you? This is a great movie. I didn't care about her needs. I only cared about my own. To this day, I, I look back and I was like, why did I not get up and leave? Why did I not consider her needs before my own? But now, 21 years later, my love for her has grown 
And not because time has passed, but because of time spent following Jesus. When we first got married, I probably loved her worse and then graduated to bad. And now I'm probably, on average, maybe fair, maybe not even quite good yet. But, I still, but I've got to get to better and I've got to get to best because there's no ceiling with love. And the reason there's no ceiling is because we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. God is always and continually working in our lives to help us become more and more like our son so that we could love one another the way he loved. And I believe this is why Peter says we need to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Loving one another is hard. We struggle to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more and more because we love someone else most. We love ourselves. We love our time. We love our entertainment. We love our shows. We love our hobbies. We love our rest. We love our things. And the reason we love all of these is because we have a heart problem. We have moved Christ off of his throne in our hearts, and we've replaced him with ourselves. We've replaced Christ with the things that we want, the things that matter to us. But God's word says this in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In other words, our hearts, they want what they want. And as a result, our hearts choose what feels best in the moment. And so often what feels best in the moment is whatever I want to do. Whatever I think is going to make me the most happy. And that is a sinful love that falls so short of what God desires. It's the exact opposite of an earnest, more and more kind of love. So instead of following our hearts, we need to lead them. We need to make plans. We need to be purposeful. We need to be intentional. We need to guide our hearts in the right direction. Just like with my wife and children, if I don't make plans each week, or, or better yet, if I don't make plans every single day to love them, then it almost always never happens. If I don't make plans to, to read with them, to talk to them, to sit down with them, to consider what could I do to bless them, what could I do to serve them, if I don't purposefully get that in my mind each day, it doesn't happen. Otherwise, the days and even weeks go by where I can look back and say, I did nothing to love them. Now, someone might argue with, with me and say that I, that I love my kids by, by going to work, providing for them, doing many of the mindless tasks for them, like taking them to school, taking them to church, cooking them meals, praying with them before meals. But remember, we're not talking about some average kind of love. We're talking about a better, a best, a Christ-like, a more and more kind of love. And the same is true of my relationship with God. 
If I don't decide today to spend time with God tomorrow, it's never going to happen. So when it comes to loving one another earnestly and loving one another more and more, especially with those who are suffering, we must be purposeful. We must make plans to love them. We need to lead our hearts and not follow them. I'd like to close with this. Do we know anyone in our midst who has lived their life like this? Loving others? Someone who could possibly be an example for us in this? Someone who has comforted us in all of our afflictions? Someone who has met all of our physical and emotional needs? Someone who has not only visited us, but has never left us. Someone who has literally worked out every single muscle in their entire body to the furthest limits of their capacity in order to love us. Someone who has loved us above and beyond. Someone who has loved us more and more and come to think of it, actually did hit the ceiling because there was no greater love than what he had shown for us. Someone who is mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. Yes, there is. It was Jesus Christ. If you remember from the first message, from Psalm 93, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits his house. Jesus Christ, our God, he is unlike anything we will ever experience. He is set apart. He is like, whoa. If if our suffering is like a wave of the sea, then he is a tsunami. He reigns. He works in all things for our good, in all things for his glory. He is God. And while the waves of our suffering may lift up their voice, yes, they lift up their voice, he is mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you reign. God, you are absolutely in control of everything. God, help us to just yield to that, to yield to you. To know that You knit us together in our mother's wombs. And every single day of ours was laid out before one of them came to be. You care for us, God. You love us. We are not illegitimate children, but we are your children. You do all things because you love us. You do all things to bring yourself glory. God, as we 
continue to go through suffering throughout the rest of our days here, God. Please comfort us. Be the God of all comfort. Help us to see that in, in very real and tangible ways. That we might take part in what you are doing and bring comfort to others. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.